Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guests are a former United States National Security Council official and a prominent expert on Russia, Fiona Hill, and a veteran, 25-year veteran of writing the Oscars and comedy writer for Jay Leno's Tonight Show, among many others, John Max. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, but please don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to this week's sponsors, Trade Coffee, Democracy in Danger podcast, and Workable in the show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. And please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, James, we have an extraordinary guest, Fiona Hill, the daughter of a struggling English coal miner who went to get a PhD at Harvard and is one of America's premier experts on Russia, serving three presidents, including Donald Trump. She has just published her remarkable story, There Is Nothing For You Here, and earlier wrote a book about Vladimir Putin. First of all, Dr. Hill, we thank you so much for joining us. The Russia-Ukraine peace talks have raised hopes but also fears that the Russians are, are playing games, pausing before they take to move more territory. You've studied Putin. You've even sat next to him at a dinner once. Put yourself in his shoes today. Yes, I think, you know, unfortunately, all as you've just said, those fears that uh, this may be just more of a strategic pause uh, are very real, and they should be very seriously considered. Because we've seen this in the past also with Putin. Um, if we look back, he's been with us now for 22 years. We have some pretty well-established patterns by now that most of us can observe. And when he came into the presidency for the first time in 1999-2000 at the turn of the millennium, he did so against the backdrop of the Second War in Chechnya, one of the regions in the south of uh, Russia that had attempted to secede from the Russian Federation after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I, I noted this was the second war because there was a first war with Chechnya, sort of an internal conflict, that began in 1994. After the secession of Chechnya, when the Russian military moved in, thinking it was going to do a blitzkrieg, very similar to what we've seen in Ukraine, uh, because it's part of its own territory, sent in forces thinking that there would be a rapid turnaround where they would depose the secessionist leadership of uh, Joko Dudayev, restore order, put in someone else, move on, and everything would be history. Well, instead, there was what was then the largest military action on European territory since World War II. Now, Ukraine has displaced that inside of Russia's own territory. And Putin is just um, at that point beginning his sort of rise up into uh, the upper levels of um, the Russian uh, politics. But he isn't, you know, that yet at that point right. yet. It's still Boris Yeltsin in the, the presidency. When uh, Boris Yeltsin chooses Putin as his successor, there has in theory been a peace accord with uh, Chechnya in 1997. There was a peace accord. And I was actually a research assistant at that time for the group who, um, by the international group who helped to put that together. And we were told when we actually had presided over this agreement between Moscow and the Chechens, the Hasavyot Accord, that was supposed to be, give them autonomy and a referendum on their status. Uh, you know, we actually thought we'd had some success here, right, out of a peace talks and a peace negotiation. But we were actually told by some prominent Russians, this isn't going to work. 
You just give us some time, we'll regroup and we'll be back at this again and we will achieve our final goals. And that's exactly what happened. As Putin comes into the presidency in 99-2000, the war in um, Chechnya has uh, triggered off again, potentially by a false flag operation involving the blowing up of some residential buildings, yep. ostensibly by North Caucasus forces. You probably remember all of this. Yes, I, I mean, do. You know, both of you were around then. And then Putin uh, basically puts the FSB, the uh, successor to the KGB, in charge and does a brutal clampdown inside of Chechnya. The military is no longer involved. Assassinations, you know, kind of um, uh, extrajudicial uh, detentions, kidnapping of people's families, and then we get um, the assassination of the then um, uh, Chechen leader Masadov and the replacement by the person we have today, Ramzan Kadyrov, who Putin is actually now using as part of the offensive in Ukraine. And, and the whole fear... story about this is that, you know, it was a pause until Putin and the Russians, the Kremlin, could regroup, reassess, and do this again to get their final objectives. Well, building on that, it, it, it seems to me that the reason maybe for pessimism is that the, the general contours that the optimists or the hopefuls uh, put out of any deal is there, that Russia would control those small eastern provinces in Crimea and pledge no more, no more aggression. Ukraine would commit to not joining NATO while insisting on security guarantees, including from some NATO countries. But would Putin ever accept security guarantees from NATO countries, uh, and can Zelensky, uh, Zelensky bargain away territory the Ukrainians have so bravely fought and died for? Well, exactly. That's the rub. I mean, you've pointed out the dilemma and all the contradictions, uh, you know, that we're going to be facing here. I mean, obviously, um, everything depends on the effectiveness of diplomacy, but it also um, is very much dependent on what's going to happen on the ground in the next um, several weeks while we are trying to still negotiate something. Do the Russians make further advances? Do they tighten um, their grip on the southern part of Ukraine, um, around the Sea of Azov, places like Kherson, Mariupol that, you know, are in the news all of the time now? Um, or do the um, Ukrainians continue to not just blunt the offensive but roll it back? Or does um, Russia decide to go for a full mobilization, politically declare it a war, declare this as a kind of an existential struggle for the um, future of Russia? There's one um, rather negative uh, I would say, warning sign uh, that's going through um, in Russian political sphere at the moment. One of the Duma members, the Russian parliamentary members, is actually um, submitting a bill to have Belarusians and Ukrainians declared as Russians, which is kind of upping the ante here, you know, which could then give this more of a contour of a kind of an existential struggle for Russia itself. Now, that might be just a gambit, you know, to give them more leverage yet again in uh, the negotiations. But I think, you know, what is going to be necessary here is a really focused um, full-scale diplomatic effort as well as the continued support for the Ukrainians to blunt you know, the effects of uh, the Russian military operation on the ground and, if possible, roll them back. Dr. Hill, when you said a few minutes ago uh, one alternative would be to then go all out, that's scary because all, all out might well include tactical nuclear weapons. Absolutely. Look, and we knew, um, I mean, all of us are old enough you know, to remember the Soviet period. Uh, if we go back to that period before um, 1991 and the dissolution of the Soviet Union, that was part of, of Soviet military doctrine. I mean, they had not just um, a full range of... Uh, 
tactical battlefield and uh, intermediate nuclear force and strategic force. They also had biological and chemical weapons, and it was part of their military doctrine to use them. I mean, we had to operate in that environment during the Cold War. And so what Putin is doing is dragging us back into that period. But of course, he would then cross a threshold that hasn't been crossed since World War II about the use of um, a nuclear device. Now, in some respects, he has also already used some form of nuclear device. The poisoning with polonium of Alexander Litvinenko in London, uh, you know, turning him into the first human dirty bomb, in effect, spreading polonium all around uh, London. I mean, we've already seen, in addition, you know, the use of Novichok, a banned nerve agent, a chemical weapon um, in Salisbury against another former uh, Russian spy, Sergei Skripal, that Putin and the Kremlin, the people around him, are quite willing to do extraordinary, ruthless and dirty, brazen uh, uh, things uh, to push uh, various goals of intimidation. The whole idea for them is to escalate things to what they think think would be an impermissible threshold for us, for us to uh, for the situation to de-escalate, in other words, for us to sue for peace and for settle for, you know, a lot less than, um, you know, we were originally willing to do so. But of course, it would put the whole world in such a different place as a result of that, opening up you know, I believe, then the um, levels of permissibility for all kinds of other countries. We're already grappling with North Korea, the future of uh, the nuclear program um, in Iran, but opening up for other countries to try to do similar things within their own frames and contexts. Yeah, I sure would. You, you, you've said the key to any internal pressure on him, if there is, is not from the oligarchs, that won't matter, but from that small circle around him. Are there even any hints that that could be happening? Not that, you know, we can see certainly from the outside. There are some other hints that there's a broader dissatisfaction that might, you know, push them to change their perspectives. Um, there are even reports of um, members of uh, the Russian National Guard who were dismissed for refusing to go and serve in Ukraine, actually trying to press legal action. And military officers, uh, for example, who have been opposed to the war, trying to take a legal pathway to this, which might sound surprising from the outside. But, you know, maybe, you know, they will get some traction. We've got the mass exodus of people, which, you know, some of them may be pleased about in that inner circle of Putin because, you know, they're very hard line and they're some, well, you know, great, good riddance to all of them. But if that does start to sort of affect uh, the Russian economy, Russia's security, uh, the morale of the military. I mean, this is what we eventually saw in the case of Chechnya, uh, a complete loss of morale um, within the Russian military. The emergence of the Russian soldiers' mothers' uh, committees uh, when their losses were so high. And if it really is the case that Russia may have lost as many as some of the maximal figures, which I'm sure you've seen just like I have. I mean, I, I have no way of judging personally, but if it's as high as 15,000, if these are much higher than the losses that the United States, for example, has sustained in 20 years in Afghanistan are much higher than you know, even the Russians have in other conflicts. This will eventually have some impact and effect on those other circles outside of the Kremlin, the military and elsewhere, pushing them to reassess. So a lot of it really depends on what's kind of happening, how much information is coming in and, you know, how Putin himself then assesses his abilities to keep pressing forward in this, uh, this in the way that he is. James Carville. 
Yeah, so Dr. Hill, well, first of all, thank you very much. This is something that I run into a little bit in my part of the world, and I'm seeking your counsel on this one. James, why do I really give a shit what's going on over there? I mean, I'm more concerned about what's happened out border or, you know, that the gas is high, and, it, you know, that's fine, but that doesn't ever decide presidential elections. You know, why should somebody in South Louisiana, South Mississippi, really care about what's happening in, in, in Ukraine right now? Well, what, give me some help with the answer. I mean, other than the fact that I want to choke them to death and traitors, <laughs> but I'll, I'll refrain from that. Give me some sort of reason, common sense reasons why ordinary Americans should be concerned about this. Yeah, well, look, there's lots of reasons. So I've been out on the road over the last uh, several weeks myself. In fact, I was um, in Massachusetts, um, you know, in and around Boston, talking to all kinds of people exactly when, you know, Russia invaded, since I've been to Colorado. You know, I, I've been literally all over the place uh, talking about this, and people ask the same question. But, you know, I've also met on the road an awful lot of people with a connection to Ukraine. So on, on one level, you know, this is a conflict where actually people can relate to it. I know we've had a lot of back and forth about, well, why do we not care about what was happening in Syria or Yemen or even Iraq and Afghanistan to the extent that we should have done, you know, given uh, the um, impact on the heartland of American forces, you know, from Louisiana, you know, you name it, the Midwest, you know, serving in the military and being in Iraq and, and, and Afghanistan and all of the hardship that they experienced there. But in this case, you know, we've had a, a Ukrainian immigration to the United States for, you know, centuries, actually. I mean, going way back uh, to the end of the 19th century, think of little Ukraine, the Ukrainian village in Chicago, for example. But also over the last uh, 30 years in particular of independence for Ukraine, we've had a lot of Ukrainians coming. We have a big Ukrainian-American population. I was surprised, you know, I was in Grand Rapids, Michigan, all kinds of places. How many people knew a Ukrainian? I knew someone who was married to a Ukrainian or had extended Ukrainian family or Russians and, and Russian speakers who were you know, very much affected by this. So there was that um, element of it, that sort of familiarity, people being able to kind of see that this was okay. People like them, you know, who one day are living a normal life and the next thing, you know, had their whole lives turned an end. So there was a lot more sympathy than I was, you know, kind of initially expecting for this. It didn't seem so esoteric and so over there, you know, as you might have thought. But then there's the major issue. You touched on gas. Well, of course, we know um, that Russia has tried to uh, manipulate energy markets for quite some time. This is starting to look, um, as a result of Russia's invasion, very much like the oil shock you know, that we got after the Yom Kippur War in the 1970s. And, um, you know, the sudden oil embargoes, um, there's an awful lot of, you know, we haven't got there yet, but we're certainly talking about it. But the Europeans and others, you know, realizing that they're fueling uh, the war in Ukraine by their continued purchases of, uh, of uh, Russian gas. Look, I mean, we pushed the Germans for years, going back to the Soviet period. I'm sure you remember it well when the first major pipelines were built in the 70s uh, from the Soviet Union. The United States, for you know, since the very beginning, thought this was a huge strategic blunder on the part of our European allies of tying themselves to um, Soviet oil and gas, and eventually it would become a problem. Well, now it has. The Germans have realized this because they've been the major um, uh, purchasers of um, Russian gas and also oil and coal as well. And now they're you know, trying to change um, overnight. That's going to change whether, even whether we don't do anything about our own um, energy pricing because you're going to have um, scarcity. It's going to be very difficult to substitute that. That's you know, why uh, the administration has been running around trying to get OPEC countries and 
Russia's got this affiliation with OPEC, but OPEC Plus, uh, to try to step up production. You know, um, can the United States produce more LNG? Well, of course, this is done through the private sector. It's not that easy. The government can't just command um, American oil and gas producers to do more. Uh, but, you know, basically the cost of our gas... Uh, gasoline at the um, at the pump is not, you know, because of anything the government has done, but of these larger factors of COVID, you know, not enough production going on at that time, and now this war. Another element which is really problematic here, and I think is not being fully thought through, is about food security and food prices. We've already got inflation in the United States. Ukraine is one of the biggest producers of grain in the world. Russia has invaded Ukraine. There's not a lot of planting going to be going on now in March and April for the spring planting. And uh, it's a major producer of wheat and rye and barley. Uh, Russia itself is a major producer, as is Kazakhstan nearby. Those are three of the biggest producers in addition to Canada and the United States. We can't substitute uh, for that food production globally either. I mean, countries like China were thinking about leasing you know, some land in Ukraine, for example, for their own production. There's going to be huge knock-on effects that are going to be countries um, elsewhere in the Middle East, think Lebanon, you know, Yemen that's in a war, Ethiopia, that are... That are famine um, uh, risk is going to um, increase um, exponentially as a result of what's happened here. The Black Sea was one of the major centres of grain trade. Now, um, farmers in Iowa, you know, they, again, they can't substitute, but our overall food prices because of shifts in global demand are going to be affected as well. So there's all of these knock-on effects, and the more that you start to talk about them, irrespective of what we did, we could just ignore it, but it would still affect us. And the other thing is the precedent for more of these kinds of actions that Russia is setting. It's basically, this is the big neighbour uh, distorting history, post-colonial, post-imperial land grab, and it opens up a door for every other country that has a preponderance of power over its neighbour, a, a long-standing territorial claim, its own version of history, or a declaration that it has a right to do something to basically um, take action. It could happen in Latin South America. We've still got plenty of conflicts you know, with our neighbours. We're just opening up a whole Pandora's box for more global insecurity, which inevitably will need back to you know, effects on us that we haven't foreseen yet. There's the butterfly effect, you know, from all of this right. as well. Okay. So, well, great. I mean, I learned, I learned a lot. Thank you. So, Putin, whatever, this is just my impression, he cares about his image. I mean, oh, yes. he wants people, he, he goes around in half-naked, you know, showing what a tough guy he is. <laughs> and on February 23rd of this year, I looked at Putin in, us, in my mind. I said, yeah, he's an asshole. He's an authoritarian, you, you know, but the guy is shrewd. And one thing is, you know, these Russians, because we saw what the Soviets did to the Germans in 1940, you know, during the early 1940s. And, you know, but he's got a badass on. Now, I look at him. He's actually got a pretty shitty army that can't even supply itself, that has no NCO Corps. He's not very strategic at all. He stepped into it. Now, at some level, Putin understands that. It, it is not just people, the Chinese are looking at him and saying, this is not anything any good. All right? We're not seeing anything impressive here. And he knows that. He knows that. So do you think this makes him more dangerous or more likely to lash out? Do you think his state of mind right now is different than it was the day before he invaded uh, Ukraine? Yeah, look, I mean, obviously, look, he was never so powerful and influential and so respected as he was that day before, right? 
exactly as you say, everyone's views of Putin on the outside have changed. Now, internally, you know, it's kind of debatable for a number of reasons. I mean, particularly the group of people around him rise and fall with him. There's an awful lot of people vested in Putin and the Russian state, because like 60% of the Russian population work for the state, either in the bureaucracy or you know, some state-run uh, company, for example, or in the Russian, uh, Russian government. But absolutely, on the outside, people are reassessing, uh, exactly as you've um, laid it out there, James, because... You know, I think many people, myself included, expected the Russian military to perform um, much better than it did. You know, because we've looked at all the assessments of their modernization, their equipment, the much vaunted acquisition of whole new generation of weapons, both conventional and um, nuclear. For example, uh, we thought that they'd really upped uh, the, the discipline of the army, the training, the number of exercises. Of course, this was initially billed as a massive exercise, right? And they've been exercising a lot. Right. But and they've also had a lot of combat experience. But let's be kind of clear about what their combat experience has been. Chechnya, for the one thing, and then Syria. And in Chechnya, they were fighting against a very loosely armed insurgency and separatist group. It wasn't a full-blown army, and they didn't do very well then, but admittedly this is, you know, going back 20 years. And in Syria, with the intervention in 2015 in support of Bashar al-Assad, they were fighting alongside the Syrian um, army. The opposition in Syria, as we all well know, was pretty lightly armed as well. And then they were fighting against ISIS, which is obviously a very different kind of fight from fighting against another military a rather large military in the case of Ukraine, not as large as Russia, not as well, as, as well equipped, but obviously fighting on home turf and having a lot of morale and discipline uh, in, in, a, in a positive uh, sense, very different from the Russian forces who, as you've mentioned, got overextended and the supply lines all cut off. And clearly, you know, Putin prepared for a blitzkrieg, just like um, Yeltsin did in 1994 in Chechnya when it all went wrong. Now, Putin's um, position, however is that he is a contingency planner. He always assumes that things will go wrong. So he may not yet have fully processed for himself that, 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 um, you know, that this is not working out. He keeps still seeing the goals are still in place. You know, as Mal and I were just you know, saying earlier, the very scary prospect is he still may think he's got this. You know, he could mobilize more. He could use you know, tactical uh, battlefield nuclear weapons. There's still a lot of things that he could do. I mean, he, he's shown a, a incredibly um, high tolerance all the way through his presidency for casualties. A lot of people say, oh, when the body bag is coming, I've always been saying no, um, you know, because it depends on you know, where the body bags come, for one thing. I mean, the Russian military has been very careful to make sure it's not clustered. You know, Russia's a huge country. You know, if you've got units that are taken, you know, for people from all the way across the country, you might not get that backlash. You've got a lot of internal repression, suppression of information. And, you know, Putin doesn't really see casualties as, as a factor in his calculations. Yeah, they sent in the Wagner group, a paramilitary group, to fire at our special forces in Syria in 2018 when I was still in the National Security Council. There was a firefight, you know, several hundred of those paramilitary forces um, were killed and injured by the United States. And, you know, Putin just let that one go because it was a subversive covert activity, for example, and then they suppressed information about it at home. 
We've seen in Chechnya hundreds of thousands of casualties, both civilians and uh, military. I mean, that's in some of our um, estimates. We never really got a you know a full counting of this. We don't know, you know, even um, right now, how many casualties they've actually had in Ukraine, and we we'll, may never know because you know the Russian government make it very difficult to um, find that out and to keep track of it. So the point in all of this is that you know, Putin may still think at this particular point, irrespective of you know, somewhere deep down in Turley knows this hasn't gone according to plan, that he's still got this, that he can adapt and that he will somehow find a way of dealing with it. So we may still have more weeks and months to go before you know, your point, which the rest of us are already seeing, really takes hold with Putin and the people around him. And then he'll still want to say this was a win, that all the way along we're seeing hints of that. They weren't going after Kiev. They were just, you know, teaching the Ukrainian lessons. They only just want to have the recognition of Crimea and the, the Donbass region. But they may, you know, very well want to stay in control of as much territory as they possibly can in that whole area in uh, the south of Ukraine. And Putin's going to try to push as much as he possibly can to keep hold of something that he can spin as a win. Albert? Um, let me ask you, Dr. Hill, just to address a couple of the critics or contentions that you hear. One line is that Putin went into Ukraine as a result of Biden looking weak in the American withdrawal of Afghanistan. Anything to that? That is just, um, you know, one of the factors in a long string of um, uh, events that uh, Putin has interpreted as a sign of overall American weakness. He has thought that we were weak and that we've lost the plot since the um, economic crisis of 2008-2009 for sure. Mm-hmm. He's also had a very dark view about the United States since 2003 and the decision to invade Iraq. Right. When he thought that the United States was in the regime change business. And obviously they've observed our failure to get traction with nation building and you know, all of the goals that we you know, kept on evolving in Iraq. The failure in Afghanistan over all of 20 years, it's not just Biden. It's, you know, the Russians have been there and done that, right? 10 years after the Soviet intervention. The the, um, Russian conclusion overall is the United States is weak. We're polarized. We've got partisan infighting. You know, that was part of the reason for Putin deciding to intervene in our elections in 2016. He actually, I think, in some respects, saw Biden as somebody who we could deal with because he didn't have to explain to Biden NATO, European security. Biden's been around. He was somebody who we knew who he was. He saw Biden as somebody who was capable of um, taking um, tough decisions. He wanted to be able to you know, have some kind of long-term um, deal with Biden where he hadn't been able to pull that off um, previously. But overall, his view has been that the United States is weak and we've been getting weaker. And also the West in general, NATO, the European Union, Brexit, you know, changes in Germany. All of this is a factor. He thought this was the best possible time because we were so all over weak and distracted to act. Uh, There's another line, uh, and not just from the useful idiots like Tucker Carlson, but from people like John Mersheimer, uh, a scholar, and even to some extent journalists like Tom Friedman, who say the basic cause here was NATO expansion, that Russia was obviously going to feel threatened. This is, I'm just asking you to address this, and that, uh, that that NATO expansion was a mistake. Well, look, um, I think that the, the problem with all of this is that not so much that NATO expansion was a mistake, but that we didn't fully factor in many of these issues that people are talking about, for example, and mm-hmm. the way that people like Putin, uh, who have a very dark view of the United States and of NATO from the Cold War, would have a visceral reaction. 
So we, 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 it requires some pretty careful handling and also keeping our eye on the ball. We've taken our eye off the ball over and over and over again. But when it comes to Ukraine, Ukraine has been in the crosshairs with Russia since before NATO enlargement was even a thing. So early 1990s, when Ukraine emerges an independent state, um, like everything else, out of the collapse of the Soviet Union, and had inherited that nuclear arsenal you know, from the ICBMs that had been positioned in Ukraine, as well as in Belarus and Kazakhstan, there was an awful lot of, Ru of Russian pressure on Ukraine then. You know, I was back in grad school. I was working at the Kennedy School of Government. I did a report about this with a colleague at the time called Back in the USSR, yeah. looking at all the pressure that the Russians were putting on Ukraine, uh, Belarus, and you know, other republics um, who had just emerged as independent states with a view of pulling them back um, into the fold at the time. There was a whole host of Russian nationalist um, uh, politicians, including Mayor Lushkov of Moscow, who really wanted to kind of put pressure on Ukraine at the time, take Crimea. But Boris Yeltsin... It wasn't of a view to press this. Now, one might argue that's because Russia was weak. Boris Yeltsin was weak. The military was in collapse. Uh, the country was insolvent. You know, so much debt. You know, we saw what was going on in the 1990s. But just to say that in the very beginning, there was a lot of pressure on Ukraine. There was this idea that Ukraine moving away from Russia in whatever fashion uh, was very negative and, and always an attempt to kind of think about how Crimea in particular might be pulled back. But it is true that Putin reacted extraordinarily negative uh, in a negative fashion to the expansion of NATO beginning back in 1999 mm. because he always judged that, um, you, that NATO was an offensive military alliance. And part of that was because of the decision to use NATO as the frame for our intervention against Serbia in the Balkan Wars. So the 1999 bombing of Belgrade which was essentially a NATO operation led by the United States, was a major turning point in the way that people like Putin, who was by that time rising up and being the head of the FSB and about to become president, in the way that they thought about NATO. So we needed to be very mindful that whenever we had a decision about expansion of NATO, when other countries wanted to join it, like the Poles, the Czechs, the Hungarians, the Bolts, etc., that we needed to make sure we'd done our due diligence and we're going to figure out what we would do in the event of what we're dealing with now. So the biggest blunder was extending an open door without any thinking through to Ukraine and Georgia in 2008. Let me try one more and then turn it back to James. I've also heard some, I guess, semi-defenders say that, okay, Putin's not a Jeffersonian Democrat, but he's also not a Bolshevik. He wants Russian school children to read Solzhenitsyn. He once said one of his role models was the early 20th century uh, Russian Prime Minister uh, Stolypin, I hope I pronounced that correctly. Uh, yep, yeah, Stolypin, who's yeah, a reformer. Exactly, yeah. He was a reformer of sorts. So, what's your answer to that? Well, look, Putin has definitely um, espoused all of these reformist ideas at different points in his uh, presidency. I mean, again, remember, he's been with us for 22 years. And, you know, when you look around in world history, when you look at leaders who've been uh, there and in place for a very long time, think about monarchs in the past, uh, you can talk about the czars and empresses like um, Catherine the Great, you see an evolution. They don't, you know, kind of stay in place. Putin said that he was coming back to make, or coming into office to make Russia great again. He literally said that. First of all, he focused on the domestic front. He absolutely looked at reforms. Stolypin and many others were his role model. And then, you know, at some kind of period, he starts to pivot into the foreign policy arena. And then, you know, he kind of moves in something over time for more reactionary view. 
And we start to see, you know, that idea of making Russia great again is a sort of a return to the gathering in of the lands of the Russian Empire, Ukraine becoming very central to this. That's around 2012 when he comes in for his second set of terms of the presidency. And if you looked at the phases of his presidency, we'd judge him very differently. So there's a kind of a pivotal point. He really thinks that the West is out to get him, him personally in particular, after the Arab Spring. Because he sees all of the uprisings the United States supports. He's shocked by what happens to Muammar Gaddafi, for example, in Libya. You know, we know he played the video of Gaddafi getting shot in the drainage pipe over and over and over again. He can't believe that the United States allowed Hosni Mubarak, someone that the United States had supported for years and was you know, seen as close to successive um, US administrations, to be ousted in Egypt. And Hosni Mubarak had done a lot of his flight training when he was in the Egyptian Air Force in the Soviet Union. Uh, I mean, the, the Russians, you know, and, and when Putin and the Kremlin, their minds were just blown by all of this. And so they become more convinced, especially when they look back to the US intervention in Iraq in 2003, that we, the United States, Washington, are in the business of regime change. And there's all these protests about Putin returning to the presidency. And he starts to think, aha, you know, this is it. They're after me as well. And you see him then move into a much more reactionary phase and he starts to worry against the backdrop of colour revolutions, these uprisings, not just in the Arab world, but had already proceeded in Ukraine and Georgia and elsewhere, that we were behind this. He couldn't believe that these are spontaneous protests. And so he becomes much more active and reactionary in foreign affairs as well. James. Uh, so... So, Doug, you're trying to frame this up right. Everything you've done in life, you've born northern part of England, I understand it. Your dad was a coal miner. Your, your mother was described as a midwife. My daughter's a doula, by the way. So oh, right, I, I think yes. that, that's the I think that's yeah. the more correct way we call them doulas these days. And, you know, she's a writer, and she says you can't write unless you have these experiences. But anyway, you. But if I look at you, I say, but you're like a Dudley do right. You apply yourself. <laughs> You carry yourself with, 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 with great dignity. You've educated yourself as to the extent, you know, that St. Andrews, I've been on that campus, is utterly gorgeous. It's right there in Scotland. You have Harvard PhD. <clears throat> you work with the United States, your adopted country. And the most remarkable thing was the Trump-Zelensky phone call that these people are listening to. And just out of the blue, he says, well, I need a favor from you before I give you, which is the most double-dealing, jaw-dropping. I mean, to me, that what, what went through your mind and other, you know, people who've, like, dedicated a lifetime of study and work to, to figuring this out, and then this happens. And... I think this was more egregious than January the 6th. I think it's one of the most egregious things I've ever heard, just in my kind of sort of moral code. Well, you're the president. I have nothing against trying to get political advantage or having political meetings. But the idea that you're using the foreign policy of the United States as an instrument to help your reelection, that, that's way, that's a bridge way too far for even a guy like me. Like, what is a nice girl like you doing in a place like this who had been so diligent, done Everything, you know, in, <clears throat> you just hear this like something out of a Chicago alderman's mouth. I mean, it had to have some kind of reaction among you and all of the people in, in the foreign policy world to experience something like that out of the blue. Well, look, it certainly did. I mean, and, and I have to clarify that I actually wasn't there um, for the phone call. I had okay. left the NSC the week before. 
And in fact, I'd advised against having this phone call, not because I actually anticipated what um, President Trump was going to do. I actually, you know, was pretty shocked when I found out, like everybody else, you know, the the nature of the phone call and, and read the transcript when it was, you know, released to the press. But mostly because it was obvious that Trump really didn't care that much about Ukraine and that it wasn't likely to become a very productive phone call. And, you know, my thinking along actually with Ambassador Bolton's was that this wasn't going to be a pretty good, it wasn't a very good idea. It wasn't going to advance Ukrainian um, US relations. And of course, it was even worse than that. And certainly then had been anticipated. And look, yeah, I was, I I was shocked. I mean, I I joined um, the NSC out of uh, uh, great concern about the Russian intervention in the 2016 election. A sense of public service. I'd already served in the government as the national intelligence officer for Russia and Eurasia from the Bush to the Obama administration. I'm not a partisan, you know, political or ideological person. I was deeply concerned about our national security, you know, and I kind of um, thought and assumed when I got into the National Security Council, given the fact that I'd worked with so many of these people before in different settings, that the overriding concern would be about our national security, and obviously it was not. And so, you know, like everybody else watching this unfold during that first impeachment trial, you know, through the depositions and the public hearings and, you know, myself listening to all of the facts, I was a bit taken aback. I mean, I realised it was like actually a Coen Brothers movie. I often felt that there was a certain surreal element to everything. There was elements of farce, but there was also, you know, this suddenly deep realisation that our politics, our own domestic politics, certainly the uh, perspectives of President Trump, which was very much focused on his own private gain and his own private position, you know, that our politics was just as dirty as the Kremlin. I'd spent decades looking at the Kremlin, and sometimes, you know, I understood their machinations around there in that context a lot better than I did it um, in the United States. As somebody who came as a citizen to the United States, took an oath of citizenship, then an oath to the Constitution, I was deeply disappointed and quite shocked by the conduct, you know, of some of the players around all of this. And, you know, I remain to this day, um, you know, you mentioned also in passing January 6th, that was a huge blow. Um, not just to my perceptions and, you know, feelings about the country that's my adopted country, but also to the views of the United States outside. That compounded already, I think, a a shock, a shockwave that went round the world when they heard basically President Trump trying to pervert US national security in the pursuit of his own gain staying in power. And I think there's a direct line between that phone call and, you know, what um, happened then uh, January 6th as well, you know, to really see that he's an American president who's behaving like, you know, tin pot dictators around the world, who's just trying to stay in power, you know, for his own, uh, you know, personal interests. It wasn't about America, it was about him first. And that, you know, was um, indeed deeply shocking. Well, Dr. Hill, I can't uh, tell you, you so I know James and I both have learned more uh, in the last half hour. This is like getting a PhD uh, in this crisis. And you, <laughs> you are so good. And no wonder you've become the rock star that you are today. And we can't thank you enough. And all you listeners yeah. out there, get Dr. Hill's book, There Is Nothing For You Here. Uh, everything she does is fabulous. So thank you very much, Dr. Hill. So, so Dr. Hill, just on a personal note, I, I, I have two daughters. And I just think that what you have done and the way and the way that you've conducted yourself, I think is an inspiration to women or girls everywhere. I mean, I, I really do. I think I, I think you're an incredibly important role model. Uh, you know, you're in an area that you know requires deep scholarship and understanding. You have more than anybody, and just as a as a as a citizen of the world, I, I really thank you for 
the way that you educated and prepared and conducted yourself through all of this. It was a huge honor to have you on the show. Oh, well, thank you very much. And look, I mean, I think that this is, you know, a testament to, you know, sticking at it in education as well, because, you know, when I was a kid, you know, setting off in life, you know, I was trying to answer questions for myself as well. And, you know, thinking there's a whole world out there that I didn't understand, you know, and in part, this was all my own effort to make sense of things myself. And, um, you know, I would just um, also recommend to everybody go out there, study history, you know, try to um, keep on um, having an approach to lifelong learning. And, you know, I also tried to follow the admonition of my grandmother who said, you know, you've got to try to leave the world in a bit of a better place than you, know, than you found it when you came in. So thank you very much for saying that. It's, um, it means a lot as well. Well, we're well, in a lot you, better Amanda. place thank because so of much. you. And our, our objective in this show now is to get you back at some time, Dr. Hill. Well, so- I would love to. And um, hopefully without some of these technical problems that we just had. But hey, the phone and sitting right here next to the router right there <laughs> seems to be helping. <laughs> it, it actually oh, look, yeah. it looks lovely, and I don't want anyone out there to forget. Get Dr. Hill's book. There is nothing for you here. Thank you again very, very much. Thanks so much. Thanks, thanks to both of you. It's been a real pleasure and an honor. Great. You know, I have never been so enamored of, an, of a voice in a commercial. I am going to get that coffee as soon as we are done. God, I mean, tell me something, John. You've been around a lot. How, how would you, how would you, you know, uh, how, how do you think I stack up against Ed McMahon? I was just going to use the Ed McMahon comparison. You know, let's just, I'm just, we're just so lucky Ed's not around anymore <laughs> to hear it because he would literally just walk away, give you the microphone, and then you would be going door to door delivering publishers clearinghouse uh, oh checks. Oh my God. The giant 15-foot yeah. checks to people. And call Murray Hill 874214. <laughs> The uh, uh, true story uh, had a book out a few years ago, and about 10 years ago, and they booked me on Ed McMahon had a radio show. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I get on the phone with him right beforehand, and he says, listen, just let me handle it. It's a 15-minute interview. Let me handle it. 15 minutes he talks about the book. Talks about you. You have to go and buy this. You have to buy this book. Stop what you're doing. And he keeps for 15 minutes. He plugs the book. Never asks me one question. He goes, John. It's been great having you on, but we have to go now. And I'm there. This is fantastic. He's been. I had a 15 minute ad on the Ed McMahon radio show, and literally never asked me a question about the book <laughs> or anything. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, James, we're on a roll. Our next guest, John Max, whose fame, other than being the father of Dan Max, one of our producers, is he's produced or written for scores of top Hollywood fare, including dozens of Academy Award occasions. John, you're an insider. Tell us the backstory of the infamous Will Smith slap at Chris Rock Sunday night. Well, I was in the bathroom. Did something happen? No, so anyway... Um, I'm backstage where I'm normally at, right behind the producer's table. And early on, I had gone back and talked to Chris. I go back into the green room where the talent is, and I, you know, hey, John Max, you all good? You know, and I know Chris, I obviously work for him. Uh, he's all good. And he has a script. 
and he goes out and but before he does the script, he is almost I call it like in Terminator 2 where the Terminator's scanning people and he just oh there's Denzel and he goes, you know, Denzel King Lear's got nothing on me. And then he sees Javier Bardem and he does a joke about Javier. If Penelope loses for best actress, you better lose for best actor. You know, you better not win. And then he goes to Will, sees Will and Jada, does a joke. Now, you know, he had done some jokes about them six years ago at the Oscars, which I don't know if they took very well. And Will starts to laugh. And then for some reason, he went from laughter to rushing up on stage and slapping Chris and I got to say that I've never seen anyone handle a situation like that better than Chris did, which is he, you know, basically he reacted, he said some line, and then he actually went to the script. Now, what's really upsetting to me is he skipped the joke that I had in his actual script. That's, so that's, a, really, that's, a, that's a cardinal sin. That was, you know, again, and again, you know, but like, you know, all parts, you know, no part of the buffalo goes unused. I'll recycle that one. Um, <laughs> but he, uh, you know, and then he, you know, went and did the thing. And I think he wanted to do, you know, documentary he wanted to do because he loves documentaries. He wanted to, when I talked to him originally, he said, that's the award I want to present if I can do it. And I, I just felt, I felt bad for Chris. I felt bad for the Academy. I felt bad for the other presenters and also for Questlove, who, you know, his moment in the sun is kind of overshadowed by the stunned silence that was there. Yeah. And, you know, and then Chris, you know, was immediately taken out. And I, I guess LAPD met with him to ask if he wanted to press charges and he didn't. Um, and so Jamie, I mean, not Jamie, so Will got to go on. I was going to say Jamie Foxx, uh, and so many comics around the country are rallying behind Chris, taking out billboards, whatever. Because, again, you know, it was just so out of line and so uncalled for, uh, for Will to do that. And, um, you know, again, I think I speak for all comedians and comics about, you know, if, if we're going to get slapped for telling a joke, what's next? Somebody pulls a gun? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, you know, I, it's ridiculous. I think you talk about taking away Will Smith's award. I, I agree with you on his behavior. But what, what might the Academy do to mitigate or, you know, parlay? Yeah. Uh, I, well, first of all, they're, they're not going to take away his Oscar. Uh, right. th that's reserved for the Harvey Weinsteins of the world. <laughs> and yeah. uh, as well, it should be. I, again, I think the Academy's probably meeting. And, you know, I get, you know, there's, there's three separate tracks. You know, track one is, you know, what does the Academy do in terms of, of him? And I assume they're thinking of, do we sanction him for a year? Do we not let him, you know, go, you know, go to the Oscar next year? Cause traditionally he would present best actress. You know, do we take away his, 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 his VIP parking pass at Spago? I mean, I don't know. There could be any of those things that, that, that could be done. Uh, I don't know what they're going to do. I, you know, the separate track is does LAPD decide to file charges on their own again, out of my hands. I mean, in one sense, the good news, I mean, is I'm done because the minute the show's over, my, my work is done. Um, and, you know, I'm now just reading like everybody else for what's going on. I mean, my main concern was Chris, and I haven't had a chance to talk to him. We've been texting, but I haven't had a chance to talk to him yet. Well, I am a big Will Smith fan, uh, and I think... He's taking a huge reputational hit. Uh, James mentioned Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and others. Uh, what would you advise Will Smith right now? Uh, 
you know, again, there's the traditional celebrity thing of anger management. <laughs> you know, right. I'm going to go to anger management. I mean, he, he did apologize, but I mean, if I were, were Will, I would, I mean, it was what he did also is, as Kareem has pointed out and Howard Stern has pointed out, I mean, Howard Stern had the brilliant thing. He wouldn't have done this if Jason Momoa had made that joke. <laughs> I mean, he would not have, you know, rushed the stage if The Rock was on there, if Dwayne Johnson was there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if I were Will right now, I mean, I would continue the apology tour. I would, you know, this is, I guess, I saw a video. This is not the first slapping he's done, you know, of, of somebody. I think there was one in the past. I'd do the apology tour. I'd go to anger management. And I would meet with Chris. Yes. And just, yes. And just say, listen, you know, man, I was wrong. You know, I was dead wrong. And, you know, in terms of the comments about the, the kind of the weird speech that he did, you know, when he accepted, well, that's in the heat of the moment. I can't, you know, your emotions are running high then. That's just talk. But, you know, I, 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 that's what I would probably do. Keep the apology going. Go on a late night show. Meet with Chris. James. So, uh, John, give it, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you've written for every Oscars in this century. Uh, well, I've written... For 25. Uh, okay, so we're 22 into the century. Yeah, well, I started, yeah, I missed one year. Oh, okay. I was jammed. So I did uh, 90, 1997 to 2014, then 2016 to 2022. All right. So I missed got, that, that act was here. That, that, that's yeah. more than anybody in history, right? Yeah, that, that, uh, they, they tell me, that, that's, that's kind of the, the record. And, and again, there's two types of writers. There's host writers and there's show writers. And right. then the sometimes I've done both. I started writing for Billy Crystal as a host writer. Right. And, but there's years I've done both. Like well, you kind of buy it. Yeah. You buy yeah, it. You can, go, you can swing either way. Yeah, right. exactly. I, yeah, I'm Chuck Bednarik, for those of you who are Philadelphia oh, Eagles fans. Oh, there you go, Al. That was number, for you. Number oh, no. 60, University of Pennsylvania, <laughs> center and middle linebacker. Al, that, and Jimmy Taylor. <laughs> Al, that was for you. I'm the last of the two-way players, the 60-minute oh. man. Wow. <laughs> so, call me cynical, but I, I'm going to predict where this ends up, right? Because somebody's going to make money on this and a lot of it. The yeah. hosts for the 2023 Oscars are going to be Chris Rock and Will Smith. I mean, it just has to be. I mean, it, the whole world, I mean, it, it, you can't deny the public what they want. Oh, exactly. Exactly. Uh, it's, it's, uh, let's put it this way. I'm sure that they, you will get a producer credit if it happens. I suspect right. it's not, you're not the only person who is speculating so. about that and, and right. hoping it comes true. Yeah. I, I, th I think I hope it comes true. It just makes too much mon monetary sense for it not to come through. The Oscars would be relevant again. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, the most, you know, I never heard the phrase, you know, I never understood the phrase, my phone blew up until after that moment in the show. And, you know, the first one was about 30 people saying, was this staged? No, <laughs> it wasn't staged. Do you think that anyone would do this? Do you think, and again, earlier in the show, uh, Regina Hall had a, a bit, which is very funny about doing COVID testing for some of the good looking men in the audience. And she just said, Adlib, come on up. Well, Bradley Cooper walked up on stage. That was not staged either. He did it. And then the rest of the guys all walked on stage. 
uh, it's those moments that, well, not the Chris and, and Will moment, but those moments are what makes the show great when something spontaneous happens. Unlike so, that. So you and Chris are, are, are close friends. Obviously, I met him in New Orleans. He did something at the same yep. You came down. And he's a, he's a much smaller guy than you think he is. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's not, yeah, I mean, he's, look, he's thin and in great shape. Do you know right. what I mean? But he's not right. 5'10". You know, no. he's not, you know, he's not six foot, you know, he's not, I mean, right. Jamie Foxx is, you know, is a, you know, a big, strong guy. Chris is different, Bill. Uh, yeah, I've worked for Chris since 2005 or six. Phone rings one day on my Tonight Show desk. I pick it up and I hear he goes, is this Mac? And yeah, he goes, this is Chris Rock. You're hired. I said, for what? He goes, the Oscars. Steve Martin told me I had to hire you. Talk to you later. Click. And that's how I started working for him. Oh, my. So do you think that just you, you know Hollywood maybe as well as anybody? I mean, Emmys you've been nominated for, but it's multiple. Is, does Will Smith, has he hurt his career or this is just something that they're going to fix and, and he'll be right back in the middle of the box uh, office? It's so against image is the problem. Again, Will has always played a – Will Smith is his this character. I don't know Will personally, so I can't speak to what or who he is one-on-one. I mean, I've met him twice backstage for 30 seconds. Uh, but his image on screen is that of a really likable, nice guy. Again, when he started as a rapper, he didn't have those hard-edge rap lyrics. His were more family and kid-friendly, I guess is the best way to describe it. He never had a hard edge. So now you have a guy who all of a sudden, and again, Kareem you know, summed it up brilliantly, right. as he always does. Right. I mean, it's just so against image in sending the wrong thing. I think it's going to take a little while. I mean, I think really? he needs to... to, to I think he needs to dig out of that hole. And I'll turn back to Al. Just we made a point about you and I agree on the Kareem thing. I, I think he said what so many people were thinking and afraid of, and it, it, we're, we're lucky to have Kareem as a commentator. Albert? Oh, we sure are. You know, you have worked for so many uh, of the elite uh, in the entertainment field, uh, John, and excluding James Carville, who's the most interesting person you've worked with? Well, very tough. I mean, you know, every, you know, everyone else is level B after James. I mean, let's let's yeah, be honest. Right, and right. James James wrote that, that line. That's in the script, isn't it? Of course, you never work for Chuck Bednarik, but go ahead. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, again, I'm very lucky to work for Billy Crystal and Steve Martin and Marty Short and, you know, for Chris and Jay Leno, of course. Um, you know, all comics are different, so it's really hard to compare apples to oranges. Um you know, and, and I'm lucky to be friends, you know, closer friends with others. Like, you know, Marty Short is a dinner friend, for example. Do you know what I mean? And, you know, yep. I probably, probably the, again, I would say some of the more interesting ones are the, I don't even say it, the, the non-comics that I write for. Like a Helen Mirren is fascinating because she has so many stories about things that I'm not, not in my world or Michael Douglas, who I'm lucky enough to write for, or Morgan Freeman, they have different perspectives. So, so to me, when I'm, when I'm with a comic, I'm always working with that. When I'm with an actor, I'm hearing things that I don't really know. Yeah. So, John, you've also written for lots of politicians, uh, and maybe it's the times, or maybe it's just that I'm getting older, 
but it seems that good, sharp humor is a diminishing force in American politics. Do you agree? And any thoughts on why? Yeah. Uh, again, you know, we're so tribal, we're so divided. Everyone wants to be outraged. It's just a joke. It's just a joke. And and my friend Ricky Gervais, who I write for, said, you know, summed it up best. People confuse the subject of the joke with the target of the joke. You know, just when you start a joke, just the subject, you shouldn't get outraged at the subject. We're often as comics taking the side of the target. And also humor, and people understand, I mean, what would Don Rickles be now? Would people be shooting Don Rickles now? They'd be yelling at him. Um, you know, and I think that we've lost that. It's like with political humor too often. It's not humor, it's insults. It's calling someone a name. I mean, again, I don't think, I think Donald Trump is stupid. But calling him stupid is not a joke. <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a statement. Doing a joke with a twist, with a setup, a twist, a punchline is different. I think we, you know, humor works best when it's a surprise, when there's a target, and when people are saying what you and the audience are thinking but unable to say and then putting a different take on it. At the top of the game, Chris may be, I think Chris may be the best I've ever seen at that sort of thing. The other thing for politicians, and I'll turn it back to James, is that the, the real masters, the Jack Kennedys, the Ronald Reagans, uh, self-deprecation was really, really effective. It's, and you just don't hear that very much anymore. I got, I got a, uh, 20 years ago, Arnold Schwarzenegger called me. I, I, he, 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 I think he got my name from Maria Shriver at the time. And uh, he called me and he said he was doing, a, he was doing a, some speech somewhere and he wanted an opening joke. And the joke I gave was this. He came out and he said, you know, I'm living proof that anyone in America become a, become a multimillionaire if they work hard, they study hard, and they marry a Kennedy. <laughs> so, okay, right there, he's bringing it back. It's like he's, he's addressing the elephant in the room. He's married a Kennedy. Yeah, maybe yeah, he does work hard, study hard, but it doesn't hurt when you marry someone from that family. And, you know, Reagan was a master at that. You know, it, it, truly, Arnold is great at self-deprecating humor. I think uh, that was the gridiron speech, which I was there. But in any event, yeah. uh, James Carville. So I, I can't let you go without noting that you and Al Hunt grew up not very far from each other in suburban Philadelphia. And so how many games are the Phillies going to win this year? <laughs> and why are they going to win so many or so few games? Uh, I'm going to take, I'm going to go 88 games. Whoa. I think we're going to go 88 and 74. All right. Uh, I think that me, that was with, with the expanded playoff slot, since every year everyone overlooks Atlanta for the last four years, I'm going to overlook them again and right. say that, that uh, the only two teams I know that won't be in the playoffs are the Mets from that, uh, not the Mets, the Marlins and the Nats. Sorry. Yeah, we know the Nats. Uh, yeah. And uh, I think we're going to make the playoffs. I think 88 games. And I, I am, Optimistic that we're only adding 74 losses to our lifetime total of well over 10,000, which when you think about it, means the Phillies have lost 100 games a year for 100 years. <laughs> well, I knew, you, I knew you'd have insight. Uh, John, thank you so much. You're just terrific insight on, I, I think, a, a significant cultural movement moment in, in, in modern America. I really do. I think the ramifications of this are, are to, could be discussed for some time. So, uh, Al, you got anything you want to say in close? 
Well, I guess on the Phillies, I wouldn't be quite as optimistic as John. I think that bullpen is really uh, is really weak uh, right now, John. So I would say 82 wins, and they're not going to make the playoffs because I think the Braves are going to. But that's not, you know, I tell you this much: they'll be they'll probably be 20 games ahead of the Washington Nationals. That that, that I think we can be we can rest assured of. Yes, rest assured. Yep. Right, John. I'm going to send you an email, as a matter of fact, because I got a we we got a big event coming up. So I'm going to ask your advice for 60 seconds. Can, but I'll do it after. Consider it done. All right. All right. Okay. You were a terrific guest. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you so much. See, I'll call you later. All you right. We'll talk later. See you guys. You bet. Okay. Hey, James, now for the listeners' questions. Gordon in Norwood, Michigan, asked, the poll numbers keep dipping for Joe Biden and the prospects for the midterms continue to dim. I've always found having a game plan and taking steps to implement that plan helps. So what more other than campaign contributions can we do to improve prospects in November? Wow, what, what a, uh, if, I t- if I had had a tear out, which I don't, I would have torn it out a long time. Here, here are some things that I think right off the bat is as you head into November, you, you can't forget the opposition, all right? Because they're clearly going to say, well, you know, inflation and, and when, you know, and you say something, well, it's a, a worldwide energy, it's other people have it and stuff like that. It's, you have to attack them very hard. And boy, and they give you so much stuff. I, I think the prime thing is the Rick Scott plan that a lot of them endorsing. Well, you're going to raise taxes on, I don't know, 54% of families in the United States. But, but we have got to learn. We don't do very well in branding ourselves. We understand that. Our messaging has traditionally been constipated. But we as bad, we don't brand them. And there's, a, there's this, this sense that you know, well, they've gotten away with this. Well, when you talk to people that do the focus groups, their image of the Republican Party is not that great, and we got to drive it up. There are many aspects to having a, you know, not getting slaughtered in November, but one of them is we got to play the game, and they do a very good job of branding us. We got to do better of branding yep. them. That that's they're planning that follow from that, but that's my my my. Chief observation. I agree. Um, this is Connie in Springfield, Missouri. Uh, she said, "She said oh, we wow. never mentioned Missouri as a state where you might pick up a Senate seat. <clears throat> That's understandable. It's very red, but 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 uh, Connie is supporting a terrific young Democratic candidate named Lucas Kuntz. I think I have that. It's K U N C E, and I think we can pull off an upset. What do you think? I, I have just read about uh, your candidate, Connie, who's a, a Marine and." Sounds very attractive. Democrats also are very excited about this woman who just got in. Uh, she's a Bush heir, uh, Trudy Bush Valentine, a nurse. Uh, she's obviously, you know, going to have a bunch of money. And look, <clears throat> if the Republicans nominate the former governor, Eric Greitens, I think that really is in play because he was he was kicked out of office because he was so bad. He has sexual assault charges against him. So I think I think Missouri it'll it'll be like Missouri did in 2006 I guess it was in Indiana a few years later if they don't nominate him I think it's going to be an uphill slog. 
Yeah, just so when you say the Bush family, to be clear, that's the Anheuser hey, Bush family. Exactly. B U S C H. Yeah, I'm right. I know that you meant it, but just in case, because it's kind of funny because I did a speech this morning in a Delta compact in Missouri, and I had some people in Missouri come up and make exactly the same point. That that Greitens is a really compromised right. candidate, to and say Trump's the least, backing him. More people and would, Trump's uh, backing. and Trump's right. backing him, and we do have some uh, some good Democrats here that that are ready to to take the mantle, and you know Missouri has really turned you know really hard red. Uh, we can win it under extraordinary circumstances. Hopefully, we have such circumstances today because there's there's a lot of terrific people in the Show Me State, and. I'd love to see us have, you know, I mean, the representation they got with Josh Howley has got to be humiliating oh, to people. That great it state. sure is. Mark in Maine doesn't tell us where in Maine. I love that state, Mark, so next time tell us where in Maine. It, it, he says, it seems like oh, every yeah. week you guys spend as much or more time beating up on AOC and the squad as the right-wing echo chamber. When I think of the progressive left, I think of universal health care, greater access to education, more investment in clean energy, and greater steps to reduce inequity in this country. At least the squad has actual positions. You know, uh, don't you think it's time to help them instead of getting upset about good ideas like uh, with a bad slogan? Well, first of all, I don't think the democratic social America coming out against sanctions of Russia is a particularly good, a particularly good idea. But at any rate, I understand where you come from. This is my problem. They don't run against – if they ran against Republicans, fine. All they do is run against other Democrats. So if you think that the problem facing the country is not McConnell or Trump, but it's the fact that you still have, quote, establishment, unquote, Democrats left in the Congress, that would lead you to that position. But every time I turn around, they're, they, 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 all they do is compete in Cook, PVI, Democratic, plus 40 districts until they can demonstrate some broad-based appeal to win an election, I'm just not that impressed with the whole operation. I'll, I'll, I'll be, I agree with on any number of policy points. I don't, I don't think they're bad people at all, like the, the pro-Russia faction of the Republican Party of the United States, but I, I, I think they're somewhat naive, and I'll continue to say that, and I think they tend to be, some of them tend to be more obsessed with language than they are actually implementing laws. So I, I'm, I'm the, our person from Maine is an astute observer. Uh, I, I am, I don't, I don't hate them or anything like that, but I, I, I don't see the great contribution either coming in to getting things done. Our next question is from Scott in Wendell, North Carolina. And he says, we've all been watching Ukraine and the absolute guerrilla-style marketing of Zelensky, which has been fabulous, of course. My question is, why the heck can't the Biden administration uh, learn and implement and duplicate some of this? Well, first of all, Scott, I would say you're right about Zelensky. It, it's, it's, it's different. It's harder uh, for Biden. I'm not going to defend the, the marketing and communications skill of this administration, but it is harder. And he says, why can't the Democratic Party and Jamie Harrison respond to the war that's being fought against us? James, I don't think the DNC is the most important uh, vehicle in the Democratic arsenal. Uh, these candidates, it's usually the, the DCC, the DSCC, or the DCCC. But I must say, just from afar, I'm not impressed with Mr. Harrison's stint so far. He could at least be telling people, and I, maybe he is, but I'm not aware of it, about the stakes involved in Secretary of State races, judicial races around the country. Democrats have a habit of pouring money into the, into the top ticket, uh, the, 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 the shiny bobble, and there's some races where 
Republicans have been smarter. And I think that's a role the DNC could play in drawing more attention to that. Yeah, it, I, I get a lot of questions about it. And I, you know, I've been around Democratic politics, national Democratic politics since uh, 82. And the DNC is just not that big of a player. Yeah. I mean, we were very fortunate in 92. Ron Brown was the, the chairman who was one of the better chairmen. But I, I, and I'm not sure that Jamie, you know, his, he's got to raise money. They got to do voter files. They got a, a, a lot of things they're doing. They've never been that good at being the public arm, of the sort of spokesperson for the party, if you will. And that, that maybe that's something that we got to, maybe we need to repurpose the DNC. Yeah. Or, or maybe we need to see what its role is. I mean, that's something to think about. But traditionally, that has, has not been its role. The RNC has traditionally played a bigger role in Republican politics than the DNC plays. Maybe it's the culture of our party. I'm not sure, but it, it's something worth exploring. Do, is, is, could there be a change of mission, a change of messaging for the DNC? I don't know the answer to that. Well, I think that's right. And there's also the questioner is from North Carolina. And, um, you know, I saw the DNC put out a bunch of priorities the other day, which had Florida and other predictable states. And it didn't have North Carolina. There's not only a Senate race down there. There are at least two competitive House seats now. There are very few places where you have two competitive House seats the Democrats could win if it's not a terrible year. And a Supreme right. Court race down there, which will may well affect the future of the country. So I think that you know, should be a priority whatever role they play. But, uh, right. you know, moving on, uh, Bob uh, in Tampa, Florida, says it's unbelievable that Clarence Thomas did not recuse himself on any issues involving Trump. And he was the only justice who voted, voted in favor of Trump's ability to withhold documents uh, and now given his wife Jenny's uh, correspondence to overturn the election, as she said, the great heist. Why isn't this story gaining more traction? So my advice is read Jonathan V. Last on yeah. Bulwark. It's okay. good. It's good. That, that's, that's, that's just all world stuff. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I've, of all the things that's happened Donald Trump has done, one of the best things he's ever done is take uh, Tim Miller and Jonathan V. Last and guys like this and run them out of the Republican Party. Charlie and Sykes. the Democratic Party. Charlie Sykes, for sure. And Bill Crystal. I mean, yeah. I mean, except Bill Crystal will go on and on, Stuart Stevens, I, you know, I, I don't leave anybody out here. But it, it's been fun to watch these guys operate, and Democratic writers and consultants and messaging can learn a lot from these guys. They yeah. are very, very clever. They're very brutal. Uh, they make a point, and they're, they're, they can punch hard. And so read Jonathan, and I don't know Jonathan B. Last, I wouldn't know him if he fell on me, but he's a really talented guy, and he had a really good piece on Jenny and Clarence Thomas. Yeah, he sure did. James, the next question is from Daniel in Staffordshire, England. He says, have, have the Biden and Obama administrations calibrated their relationships with, with Germany correctly? Germans, uh, d Germany's disastrous energy policy and lack of investment in defense surely deserves public criticism, as Zelensky has said. Look, I think that would have been a very relevant question six weeks ago. The Germans really have, have stepped up to the plate. They canceled their pipeline, which was a tough decision for them because that's where they were going to get a bunch of their energy. They're going to uh, significant increase in defense spending, which they have resisted before. They are sending resources in. And I think this. everybody thought this new uh, leader in Germany would be such a letdown after Merkel. But based on the first couple months in this crisis, I think you have to give the Germans credit? I think you've got to give the Germans street credit. I, I mean, I think the country, the, the public had this oh shit moment. And I, I think the government has responded 
well to, to public sentiment. And wait, look at public sentiment in Finland, which now wants to be in NATO, which they never dreamed of before all of this. Or, or Swiss, this, I mean, the Swiss took Hermann Goering's money. All right, and now, I mean, I, 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 I go back to the European street's been the big hero. And the, the, yes, the Germans had some less than enlightened policies in there, but, but you know, they're changing. Yeah. And they should be encouraged to, to continue the changes that they're making. James, you will like this final question because you know this day. Christine in Lansdale, Pennsylvania, can you no, weigh I, in on the craziness that Pennsylvania's Republican Senate primary? So, as I get it, McCormick is attacking Dr. Oz for being Turkish. Yeah. I have no idea what's wrong with being Turkish, but okay. It, of course, McCormick's wife, who I know is a very much of a Washington insider, Dina Powell, is Egyptian. She's born in Egypt. Right? right? I mean, Ben, I, I don't think that, I think there are other reasons that I may not like Dina Powell, but being an Egyptian is not one of them, all right? This is insane. There's one word for all of these people. They're Americans. Until we get, until we understand it. Why are they, why is McCormick doing this? I, I you know, and if you have any sympathy for Dr. Oz, just do John Oliver, Dr. Oz, and that, that'll cure you of any affection that you may have for Dr. Oz. And it has nothing to do with the fact that he's, Turkish descent, I promise you. This was a Republican Party in Pennsylvania that over the last 30 years had Tom Ridge and Richard Thornburg and John Hines. Sure. Uh, I mean, sure, this, yeah. is, this, is, this is really a Charlie deterioration. Dent. This is a terrible deterioration. Oh, it really no, is. It is. These are, it and, is. you know, McCormick was supposed to be, you know, the rich guy, respectable. And who's his, right. who's his immigration consultant in the campaign? Stephen Miller. The He's Duke. gone all in for Trump, which means that he'll adapt to anything that's convenient for him. Right. Right. It so. just, it, it, and see J.D. Vance. I mean, what, what, one of the things is, is to watch these previously people who had some of a modicum of pride just grovel. And these people don't have children. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. They don't have family. I mean, they, they, can they walk in and look anybody in the eye? I have no idea. I mean, they're really making fools of themselves. Oh, they sure are. All right, keep those questions coming. Uh, we we only get to probably half of the really great ones, uh, but keep them coming. If we didn't answer the question this week, send it in again next week. Thank you. Hey, James, now for the outrage of the week. You know, before you were the famous James Carville, President Nixon was ordered to turn over tape recordings uh, that he made, and we found out he, that there was deleted an 18-and-a-half-minute gap, which led investigators back in 1974 to conclude that as bad as the stuff they had, what was deleted might have been worse. You know, that was kid stuff compared to what we learned this week about Donald Trump, courtesy of Bob Woodward and Bob Costa. There was nothing on his phone that infamous day of January 6th for seven and a half hours while he was inciting an assault on the Capitol to overturn the election. We know from others he had plenty of conversations that afternoon. So why did he use another phone? You know, you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to know why. It was purposeful to conceal those nefarious, probably illegal calls he was making. Find that phone or phones, whatever it takes. And also last week, Judge David Carter, in a separate issue on turning over records to the January 6th committee, said based on the evidence he saw, 
it's more likely than not that Trump was planning a crime. You know, I'm not a lawyer like you are, James, but that sounds to me a lot like probable cause. And I just hope the Justice Department is watching. You know, I, I, I agree that your outrage is, is, is an outrage, and I was going to just go along with it, but, but I want to say something like the non-outrage. Uh, you and I both love sports and athletes, and if you took an athlete's skill and intelligence and you put them on a matrix, I don't know of anybody that would rank higher than Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He's just a, a very, very thoughtful, brilliant guy in addition to being, you know, one of the three greatest basketball players in, in history. And when the Will Smith incident happened, myself, and I suspect that a lot of people at you and a lot of people that listened to this podcast had the same thing. Oh, God, you know, Fox is going to love this. This is just exactly the character that they want uh, of black men, you know, slapping each other. And, of course, it's not the kind of thing that, you know, somebody's going to go out and say and then. Kareem just wrote this brilliant piece and made exactly that case. I mean, Will Smith did not do anybody any favors here. And I am so happy that the, and the best person by far to call this out, in my opinion, just given the, the, the guy's credibility, you know, the way he conducts himself, I, I thought his piece was very valuable and very insightful. And Kareem... Uh, I thank you for doing that. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd appreciate it if you'd check out the links to our sponsors, Trade Coffee, the Democracy in Danger podcast, and Workable in the show notes. We thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.